The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was born Alice Ann Laidlaw on July 10, 1931, in a small town called Wingham, Ontario, the daughter of a mink farmer and a schoolteacher. Eighty years later, Alice Munro was the first Canadian to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, cited by the committee as a master of the short story. But even in her incredibly rich body of work, one story has stood out. The bear came over the mountain, which has entranced its readers ever since it was first published in the December 27, 1999 issue of The New Yorker. After rereading the story in the wake of the news of her Nobel Prize, critic James Wood wrote, quote, Few contemporary writers are more admired, and with good reason. Everyone gets called our Chekhov. All you have to do nowadays is write a few half-decent stories, and you are our Chekhov. But Alice Munro really is our Chekhov, which is to say, the English language's Chekhov. End quote. We're looking at Alice Munro and one of her greatest masterworks today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We have Mike Palindrome here today to discuss Alice, Alice Monroe, sorry, to discuss Alice Monroe and one of her stories. The ending of that story, if you haven't read it in a while or have never had the pleasure, well, you should definitely check it out. We talk about the ending and and uh, I can feel my pulse quickening even now. The ending is so gorgeous and filled with such a lovely ambiguity, it becomes something larger than life. Larger than the page. It it floats out of the book. That's how I felt. I compared it with Mike. I compared it with the Beatles. The ending of A Day in the Life and the piano chord. The transcendent nature of that final song on the Sgt. Pepper album. And that still seems right to me. The story builds and builds and builds. And then it takes off. And then finally, it lands with resonance. So good. Let's read some emails. Subject, Superb History of Literature Podcast. Hi, Jack. I'm kicking in a five spot in support of your literature podcast, which I discovered recently and enjoy immensely. Hey, thank you. <laughs> the listener is talking about our Patreon account, which you can find at patreon.com slash literature. It helps us keep going. It helps us. It helps keep us going. And anything you can give is much appreciated. The email continues. I've been working my way backwards, as it is my custom to do in many things, and after listening to episode number 87 on dear old D.H. Lawrence today, <laughs> dear, dear old, I'm not sure D.H. Lawrence would like that, but who cares? It makes me smile. After listening to episode number 87 on dear old D.H. Lawrence today, I decided the least I could do is buy you a beer once a month. Well, it's a down payment on a pint of beer, at least. Yes. This is exactly the right spirit. Think of the Patreon donation as buying me a beer, buying me a coffee, whatever your drink happens to be. A water after a workout. I love this. It's not a payment. It's not a gift. It's what you would do if you were greeting a friend that you haven't seen in a while and who's bringing you some news. We're in this together, people. Email continues. I turned to literature rather late in life after getting out of the Navy around the age 24 in the early 80s. 
In truth, I figured it would help curb my drinking. Not yet knowing that no writer worth his salt would do any such thing. <laughs> there is a history of literature and, and authors who actually encourage the drinking sometimes. Hope things turned out okay for you. I also discovered around this time there existed a treasure trove of blues recordings dating back to the early 20th century, and thus I became fascinated with Southern culture and began reading books like To Kill a Mockingbird, Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Twain, Sherwood Anderson, Steinbeck, but always working my way backwards until kaboom, the fond de siècle. <laughs> I love this. What a great email. I love it. I love those blues recordings too, and I love how this listener tackles the project of literature. One thing leads to the next. You build, you build, you build, you explore, you find parallels and connections, you expand your storehouse your internal storehouse. I know you, later in the email he says he missed it in college, and I know that. I know you came to it late, but believe me, you found the best way to absorb it. Email says, My heroes in life and literature are mainly 19th century European writers. Joris Carl Heismans, August Strindberg, Newt Hampson, Joseph Conrad. But I've been amazed at how readable the ancients and the Middle Ages can be with the right translation. Thoroughly enjoying Gilgamesh, the Nibelungenlied. <laughs> so my, my power. <laughs> oh, whenever you find a foreign word, a long one, in a language you don't speak, just attack it with gusto. That's the way to do it. Simplicius, Simplicius, Miss Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and yes, Beowulf, of which you are no great fan. Whoa. Emailer. I am a fan. Should correct the record. I think the Seamus Heaney translation is one of the great works of our time. I think the poem Beowulf is good. I just think it's a little weird that it's not ancient. It should be an ancient poem. It reads like an ancient poem. When you think about it in, in its context, that's the problem with it. That was my take after the last read. We had such subtle literature before Beowulf. We had the Greeks and Romans. We had the Bible. The Bible the Bible existed for the author of Beowulf. We know that. I won't rehearse the whole argument here. I probably should not have compared Beowulf to Chopping Mall. That was ill-advised, admittedly. Back to the email. I appreciate what you bring to the podcast, your thoughts and choice of material, as well as your guests. I'm finding it highly entertaining and often funny, and funny is one thing that money can't buy. But I'm kicking in a fin for laughs and literature. My reading program has been self-directed all along, having never gone to college, and the treasure trove of the Western canon is unlimited. Not just the Western canon, either. We've got some shows as you work your way backward. We have some good shows uh, good episodes on some great literature from India, China, Japan. You can discover those as well. I only mention this because you recently expressed some doubts on whether literature is enough to sustain us in our troubled time. I wonder about future generations, and perhaps it won't be. But looking back, it is without a doubt that the books I've read have shaped who I have become and how I understand the world. Nay, how to be in the world. For instance... How smart and awesome was a man like Voltaire? A fighting writing man from head to toe. My hero. A hearty prosit to the history of literature. Fantastic. 
I love this email. I love this emailer. I wish you all the best, Jeff. And thank you for your email and your donation. Keep going. Keep going on your path with Voltaire as your fighting man guide. It's excellent. Here's a second email. Dear Jack, I've been staring through the windows of buses, planes, and trains on my travels through South America this year. I'm a high school English teacher from Australia who decided to take time away from teaching after nine years. Your podcast has done more for me than just break my vacant stares and monotony on bus travel. It has restored my love of and faith in the power of literature, which had been whittled away by the powers that be. (laughs) Ah, wonderful. I'm wondering if... (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm wondering if the powers that be might be uh, high school students. (laughs) Have a strange kind of power to whittle things away. Can whittle whittle away quite a bit. Emailer says, I even visited Neruda's house. What joy. His widow has great taste. Wow. I've never been there to Neruda's house. And a friend of the show, Christina, recently went to Mark Twain's house in Connecticut, another place I've never been. Sometime I'll have to do an episode on writer's houses that I have visited. I think I've been to some good ones. Uh, email, Email continues. After this voyage, your podcast has made me want to return to teach English again with fervor. As typically, young teachers like myself tend to burn out and leave the profession. So, muchas gracias. Well, muchas gracias to you. That is amazing. I'm very pleased that you're returning to the profession. We need more English teachers who are not burned out and who are in love with literature. Boy, that is God's work. Uh, He says, I found a steady internet connection in Puno, a bustling port town on Lake Titicaca in Peru, and have finally got around to supporting the podcast without disconnecting. Thank you. Another Patreon. I did want to ask if you could do a podcast on some Australian novels, but instead I wanted to draw your attention to a young adult fiction novel, Jasper Jones, by Craig Sylvie. It's an Australian mockingbird, but much, much darker. Boy, sounds good. And I'd love to do an episode on Australian novels. I might need to have a guest to help. I'll put that, I'll get to work on that, put it on the list. So... As I sit by the vastness of Titicaca listening to your Lear podcast after spending the day floating and conversing with Euros Chulitas, I am content and dreaming. How would I divide my floating island home and read boat amongst my daughters? (laughs) A heartfelt thanks to you, Jack with an E. Regards, Zach. Well, Zach, that's a good problem to have. That's a good problem to have. If that's your estate, a floating island home and a reed boat, you have one in life, I would say. And as for the daughters, dividing it up, looking at Regan and Goneril and Cordelia, I assume you have three, and I assume those are their names (laughs) in this imaginative scenario that you have presented, I would say give it to the daughter who offers you nothing. Nothing except the purity of her love. And may you have a happier ending than poor old Lear. Thank you for the email and for the donation. Boy, this was a great week for feedback, and I am truly grateful. Next up, Mike Palindrome, here to talk about Alice Monroe and her masterpiece after this. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Joining me now is Mike Palindrome, who's here to talk about Alice Monroe, and specifically her story, The Bear Came Over the Mountain, a classic story. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. Okay, so Alice Monroe, this was your idea. It's, uh, boy, it's Alice Monroe is somebody, I guess you could call her a writer's writer. She's maybe more popular than that, might suggest, but she really is, it's hard to find somebody who... If even if they don't love her work, they don't think it's terrific and just admirable, and she's just one of the best. Without being snobby, she is this you know this elite example of literature in my mind. Right, she's not difficult in any sense of you know somebody who is impenetrable or the prose is is circular and hard to follow or experimental or anything like that. I mean, they're just straight stories or straight narratives. And I think the difficulty comes, you've already sort of suggested it, it comes from having to bring the kind of powers of attention and and concentration. And they're so rich and so uh, moving and so powerful and affecting. I mean, I, I end up kind of exhilarated and exhausted. And these are... You know, she's famous for having kind of the 30 or 40 page story that has the weight of a novel. And yeah. it's um, it, it's quite an experience. I, I don't think I've ever read a collection of her short stories where I've read the whole collection at once or even half the collection at once. It's really I read mm-hmm. one story and have to put it down and, and think about it and and uh, sort of re-energize myself in order to read the next story, even though I love them. You know, it's not as if I'm. I finish and I'm bored. It's like I finish and I'm uh, exhausted. This story, The Bear Came Over the Mountain, comes at the end of the collection. I have it in the collection, Hateship, Friendship, Courtship, Loveship, Marriage. Mm -hmm. And as I was thinking about its position in the back of the 
book, it almost seems like it reminded me of the day in the a day in the life being at the end of Sergeant Pepper. You know, it's, it's sort of like <laughs> this story is so good and so powerful that it almost feels as if the whole collection kind of builds to this crescendo, and then the story itself has this crescendo, and it's um, it's really something that everyone who I'm sure if people are listening to this podcast, they probably love literature. And if, if anyone does and they haven't yet had the chance to read The Bear Came Over the Mountain, they should really seek it out and uh, undergo the experience of Alice Munro at her best. Yeah, and I, I, I almost want to tell them to not listen to the rest of this episode until they read it. But Yeah, maybe. I wondered about that. I mean, I'm someone who tends not to think too much about spoilers because... Um, so let's do this a couple ways. We can do this where we people are certainly welcome to pause the episode here and go read the story and then come back if they want to experience it that way and they don't want the story ruined in any way by hearing some of the plot or some of the characters or our thoughts about the story. But I also want to give enough of a plot summary so that if somebody is just planning to read the story at some point and doesn't mind too much hearing uh, what we're saying about it, that they can still kind of follow along. So we'll try to to not assume that people have read it, but also definitely it's good to caution people. We will be talking about the story and the plot twists and the ending uh, because my whole reason for wanting to do this episode is that I find the ending to be ambiguous and confusing, mm-hmm. and I don't think Alice Monroe intended it to be confusing inadvertently so either i'm getting something wrong here or she has put in a kind of ambiguity that uh we can explore and it sounds like you have a firmer grasp on what happens so that will be uh something for the listeners to look forward to is the point where i get lost and throw up my hands and you are going to come to my rescue (laughs) (laughs) I'll try. I mean, I was I was reading a quote by Julian Barnes. He said, "I have sometimes tried to f- work out how Monroe does it, mm. how how her stories have a density and the reach of other people's novels, but I have never succeeded. I am happy in this failure because no one else can or should be allowed to write like Alice Monroe." <laughs> yeah, it is funny because. For as admired as she is, and for as many people who are as talented as they are to, um, you know, I'm sure there are people who are saying, that's who I want to write like, or I want to write stories like Alice Monroe, or she's the best writer uh, working today, or anything like that. She's very singular. You don't see a lot of uh, imitators who are able to do what she does. Yeah. I wonder, though, and I hope this doesn't sound blasphemous, I wonder if she, there are times where I feel, um, I wonder if her stories are overworked. And the reason I say that is I heard a, read an interview with her where they asked her if she wanted to read one of her stories. I think it was for a radio interview or something. And she said, no, I can't open the book because if I do, I'll start editing all of the stories. And these were, you know, stories that everyone else considers to be perfect. And... <laughs> She said, you know, I would just uh, cross everything out and write everything over. And it kind of made me wonder if there are points in her process where the story might be a little bit uh, less perfect 
or a little bit rougher, but maybe would have a little more variation. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes if you're editing and editing and editing, you end up smoothing everything out in a way that makes me wonder. Like, her prose to me is like riding in a Lexus. You know, everything is so smooth and so elegant and so uh, well-manufactured. And sometimes I wonder if... um, you know, an earlier version of a story, if we got that, we might have more of a a different kind of ride, you know, bouncing along in a Jeep or something. And if that might be kind of a fun way to experience the Alice Monroe sensibility as well. I, I, I think her first or one of her early novels, The Beggar Maid, mm. is, you know, has a different flavor from her, uh, um, her later works. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's, there's more directness and there's more it's um raw and there there's bad language in it which is mm. i don't know <laughs> yeah sometimes the yeah. stories can be a little bit genteel even though she's she covers the whole range of human experience including sex and and everything but it, sometimes it does feel a little bit polite yeah a little reserved and i think maybe that's the setting and the milieu and the characters so it's consistent with that but it is, um, you know, she's she's got that. It's like uh, I remember when people used to talk about Greenland for Graham Greene and, you know, spell uh-huh. it with the E and the G-R-E-E-N-E land. And there's definitely uh, a Monroeville or a, <laughs> there's a Monroe state, a state of Alice Monroe or something. You, It is a world that you enter mm-hmm. that you are familiar with and feels like home. We get the the whole the total Alice Monroe experience when you enter one of her stories. Yeah, I mean, like listen to this. This is from Beggar Maid, the collection, uh, the story Privilege. This is uh, the stepmother saying, "What's so wonderful about this girl?" Uh, telling her stepdaughter, um, talking to her stepdaughter, and she says, "What's so wonderful about her? Nothing. She is f- a far cry from good looking. She is going to turn out." A monster of fat. I can see the signs. She's going to have a mustache, too. She has one already. Where does she get her clothes from? I guess she thinks they suit her. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, some of that, some of these early stories are, you mm. know, that the, there's, uh, there's a gossipiness yeah. that um, is, is kind of cruel. Yeah. I wonder if so, it's because... Yeah. Later in life, you know, she's also very famous for the sweep of her fiction, that the the stories, when we say that they have the density of a novel, it's not just that they the characters are are that rich or the there are that many plot twists, but it's also the passage of time. And it's it's often, you know, thirty, forty year spans or it can move from generation one generation to another very fluidly. And I wonder if it's because the reason why she got less gossipy or less sort of snarky is as she aged, everything kind of mellowed in a way. And she taking that big historical perspective made some of that, uh, the urgency of some of that gossipy part um, kind of fall to the wayside. I would like to think that rather than her thinking that somehow being gossipy wasn't fun. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or was undignified or, yeah. Um, yeah. That's who knows. 
while we're talking about the sweep of generations, it sounds like you have some stories about her when she was at college that you found. Yeah, you know, um, she was married early in life and had two kids pretty early and then got divorced. And then she ended up meeting another guy who she stayed with for 50-odd-plus years. Uh, and it, it turns out she had known him mm. in university. And so this this is her talking about him. His name is Jerry. I had known Jerry when we were in university together. He was a senior and I was a freshman. He had he was a return World War II veteran, which meant that there were seven years between us. I had had a terrific crush on him when I was 18, but he did not notice me at all. He was noticing other people. It was a small university, so you sort of knew everybody and who they were. And he was one of that small group of people who seemed, I think we called them bohemian, when they still said bohemian. They wrote poetry for a literary magazine, and they were dangerous, got drunk, and so on. I thought he was connected with the magazine, and when I wrote my first story, part of my plan was that I would take this manuscript to him, then he would fall, we would fall into conversation, and he would fall in love with me, and everything would go on from there. I took the story to him, and he said, John Carnes is the editor, he's down the hall. That was our only exchange. <laughs> and then, <laughs> listen to this, uh, the interview goes, that was your only exchange through all your years at college? And Monroe goes... <laughs> Monroe goes, yes. <laughs> now, now, get this. Okay, this is this is 20 years later, okay? Uh, uh, I was working as a waitress um, between my f- first and second years. Oh, no, sorry. The, the 20 years part is in, in a bit. But So he, he graduates university, and then she's working as a waitress between her first and second years. Mm-hmm. And I get a letter from Jerry. It was my first fan letter. It was really a wonderful letter all about the story, but it wasn't about me at all. Didn't mention my beauty or how I looked (laughs) or that it would be nice for us to get together any of that. It was simply a literary appreciation. (laughs) (laughs) So that I appreciated less than I might have if it had been from anyone else because I was hoping that there would be more, but it was a nice letter. Then after I moved back to London, after I graduated, I had a job at, um, some company, he had heard me on the radio. I did an interview. I must have said where I was living living, and given the impression that I was not married because then, this is now 20 years later, he came to visit me. Hmm. And then he just called her up and said, hi, I'm Jerry Freeman. I was wondering if we could have lunch together. Hmm. And then they started dating and they got married. Did that break up her her current marriage, her then current marriage, or had had that already ended? Um, I think it had already ended. Okay. Um, but he, he, she thought that he would be married and have kids, and yeah. he, she was shocked to find that he was totally unattached. Mm. Wow, it's a really nice story. It's a very, it's also a very Alice Monroe story. Yeah, isn't it? It's right? so uh, the letter without the talk about her her yeah, her, her, her looks. because we're kind of jumping ahead i mean we could be jumping ahead here because this is a part in the story that i don't want to talk about specifically yet but uh-huh. it reminds me of there's a point in the story where i just thought everyone here is acting in a reasonable way but the right. you can't blame anybody for how they're acting everybody is doing exactly what makes sense and yet 
this is not the outcome that you want to see happening at this point. You exactly. Know, it's yeah. it's like this, you know, of course, what you know, who could blame Jerry for talking about her literary work? I mean that it's probably it was probably very flattering and it's probably very generous and it probably took her very seriously and took her art very seriously and all of that. And yet who can blame her? for having had this crush and to be looking for something else from the letter. And it's just, it's kind of sad, but not in a a sad, like a funeral sad. It's just a sort of slight disconnect or a slight um, misfit between intentions and expectations. And it's just kind of a beautifully human uh, aspect of this relationship and this story. And it really says a lot about Alice Monroe. I think that she kind of surfaces those emotions. She remembers them and she is honest about them and um, presents them in that kind of way. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I felt, I, I was feeling that she just gets more out of life than mm. most people. Mm-hmm. But she's able to see the, like you were saying, the, the narrative in 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 an experience like that yeah um and i'm surprised she's never used it it's such a great you know yeah. it was like 20 years later well she, she probably has used it over and over just in a kind of disguised way you know or, yeah. or adapting it to a different scenario but probably all the things that she hoped for and and all the surprises and how she felt by all of, by the reconnection and all of that. I think it probably has made its way into her, her stories, just uh, not directly. Yeah. And and then the other one I was going to say, this is a quicker one. Um, when she, soon after she was married, she was living in Vancouver and quite unhappy. And I, I thought this is a very Alice Monroe story like moment too. She said in North Vancouver, the men all worked and went away in the morning and came back at night. So all day it was housewives and children. There were, there were a lot of informal togetherness and it was hard to be alone. There was a lot of competitive talk about vacuuming and wa- washing laundry. And I got quite frantic. When I had only one child, I'd put her in a stroller and walk for miles to avoid these coffee parties. Mm-hmm. This was much more narrow and crushing than the culture I grew up in. So many things were forbidden. For example, like taking anything seriously. Mm. Life was a very tightly managed, life was very tightly managed as a series of permitted recreations, permitted opinions, and permitted ways of being a woman. The only outlet I thought was flirting with other people's husbands at parties. That was really the only time anything came up that you could feel was real because the only contact you could have with men that they that had any reality to it seemed to me sexual. Hmm. So, so like, interesting. Yeah, it's like, boy, you know, she she just sounds like she was, you know, so ahead of her time. Yeah, I don't remember if I read that passage or if I've read other things similar, and it it did just seem. I was surprised by the frankness to it and kind of the, uh, she doesn't portray herself as the kind, wise, grandmotherly type, you know, she, 
She, you right. read it and you read it like you read her statements about when she was younger, when she was married and when she was felt stifled and when she was starting to write and those things. And you feel like you're reading a, a really red blooded person talking about engaging with life. Yeah. I mean, it's, she, she's definitely not one to be held down and not one to tolerate the mundane humdrum. Mm-hmm experience mm-hmm. right okay so let's jump into the story and okay. i want to give a plot summary but first i just wanted to kind of talk about how it opens it's and the story again is the bear came over the mountain this is a good place to pause if you really want to read the story before we talk about it too much but this isn't really a spoiler this is just sort of setting up the uh the first part here which is how it opens which is, it's about, I don't know, 250 words or something, and it talks about Fiona and Grant. And they are this couple, and it talks about how they basically connected and and got engaged. And it's just this beautiful little, takes about a page, but it is, again, it's so sweeping. Yeah. And it's got such heart and joy to it, and it really kind of anchors the rest of the story. It really... It's sort of surprising that it's all you need in order to feel like uh, you are rooting for this couple and you see the joy that started out their relationship and their marriage. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a remarkable beginning. I mean, the ti- just the title also is very unique for her, I, I felt. And I felt mm. like it was, it was a big ceremonial trumpeting that this, this story was going to be epic. Mm, yeah. And then, so after that sort of one page thing, it's the, there's a section break. And then the next sentence opens uh, just before they left their house, Fiona noticed. And I, I was admiring that just for how it immediately immerses you in this uh, atmosphere that something is changing and there's something that is disturbed, you know, something has disrupted the pattern of their marriage. And, and you start think asking questions like, why are they leaving their house? And then there's a part where it says she would never have to do this again. And you think, why are they leaving forever? And we're just immersed in this. And she says, you know, it'll be sort of like in a hotel and you think, where is she going? And then it, it kind of dawns on you that, uh, you gradually come to realize that what they're talking about is he is going to be taking her to a facility because she is suffering from memory loss and the onset of dementia, perhaps Alzheimer's, perhaps they don't, Alice Monroe doesn't mention that in the story by specifically, but those are kind of the symptoms that we're familiar with. And you, I just feel this sort of, um, it's not exactly a heaviness, but it was like a quickening of the pulse. And I felt like, oh, my God, Alice Monroe, I'm about to go on this ride with Alice Monroe. It felt like, you know, if you're watching a movie with a great filmmaker and you realize it's going to be about a kidnapped child or something and you just think, oh, such a such a difficult subject to contemplate. And then I'm in the hands of a master. And I really felt like uh, I, I had to be ready to go <laughs> to go on this journey. <laughs> and then right away, she just devastates me with these details. 
she has this thing where, you know, after you realize that she's going to be gone and she's leaving her house forever, and it says she rinsed out the rag she'd been using and hung it on the rack inside the door under the sink. And I'm just thinking such a beautiful uh, mundane detail that is going to, you know, why would you need to do that? Why, why would you not be just throwing the rag on the floor and, and, you know, out the window and like this, she's leaving this house and it's such a, um, it's such a heart wrenching experience. And yet she still has these daily tasks to perform and she's going to do them well and do them right. And, and of course, you know, why, why would you throw a rag on the floor? That would make no sense. But on the other hand, it's, it's just heartbreaking for me to see this pattern of their lives and to know yeah. that it's not going to continue. There's going to be this this break in the continuity. The page before it says, Fiona had her own little car and a pile of cashmere sweaters. Mm. And then suddenly, I had. To, I remember the first time reading this, re- reading this I, I saw, I, I was struck by, she was 70 years old. And I was like, what? She's yeah. 70 years old? Yeah. And she had, <laughs> You know, Monroe at age had covered the first 70 years in like a page. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's the kind of sweep that she does that I think is so hard to imitate, you know, that yeah. that she can take you on that kind of decades-long journey. And then the other thing that I was feeling as I was starting to see this, and I mean, the good thing about this is you know with Alice Monroe, you know you're in such good hands that you're going to, if it's a topic like this, you know that it's going to be believable and surprising and well done and just beautifully written. And so, uh, but as we're going through these little moments as Grant, the husband, is taking her there and we're kind of seeing the facility through his eyes, it... um, it made me feel like it was something I needed to experience. I don't know if that sounds too uh, too grandiose, but it, it, it really felt like if I'm going to be a human being, I mm-hmm. need to go through this with Alice Monroe as my guide to really see what it's like from the inside for this person. Um, I don't know. It felt It felt essential to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I get that. I think, it, you know, it's something that everyone has to face, um, whether your parents are aging or you yourself are aging. And it does seem like, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to recall stories where they deal with one cup, one person in a couple um, aging sort of faster than the other. Mm. And in need of help, you know, because you you know one of the romantic things of a a couple that's been together for a long time, you you envision that they age together at the mm-hmm. same pace. Yeah. And here, it's not only Grant and and uh, Fiona, but it's later Aubrey and um, Aubrey's wife Marion, and the differences, uh, the rate of aging. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you're right that that does feel very much like okay this this no matter what you've been doing in your life this is head, this is where you're heading. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if you've experienced this with anyone uh, any of your loved ones but I have with a a great aunt and I remember you know it, it is um 
you know, I, I used the phrase suffering from before, but that is one of the striking things about it is it's not clear that the person is suffering. You know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's clear that right. the people around them are suffering. Yeah. It's just devastating for people if their loved one, their parent or their spouse doesn't remember their name or doesn't recognize them. It's horrifying and, and very difficult for them to deal with. And it, it makes everyone uncomfortable, but also it just leads to these feelings of alienation and rejection. And, and, you know, and then at the same time, it's something that we would really fear to go through, but the person who's going through it may seem very happy and, um, <laughs> you know, almost blissful yeah. and, and to be smiling and laughing and remembering things from long ago. And, and it's just, uh, it's almost like death in a way where, you know, we don't know what's on the other side and no one reports back. And so we just don't know. And so we, we think, you know, you can fear it and you can dread it and you can, you know, really hope that it doesn't happen to you. But on the other hand, it might be better. Like it's just, uh, it's a great unknown. And that, that's kind of like what this um, memory loss or dementia seems like. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think she, you know, one of her, uh, you know, moves is to bring levity and humor. You know, the the story that uh, Grant thinks of how he always shares stuff with Fiona and she always laughs when he laughs. And what if she doesn't laugh at this joke, but he remembers this really funny anecdote because um, she's putting post-its of names of things and times of where she, when she's supposed to be at a place. And he remembers the story about German soldiers on border patrol in Czechoslovakia during World War II. And some Czech had told him that each of the border dogs, patrol dogs, wore a sign that said Hund. Yeah. And why, asked the Czechs. And the Germans said, because that is a Hund. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's so, um, you really see, as you're seeing this from Grant's perspective, you really feel what it's like to not be certain what the best thing is. People have memory loss that that doesn't require them to be at a facility. You know, it's sort of, um, right. and, and he sort of says, well, she's always been kind of like that. Or, you know, it's just this... Um, just the the difficulty in knowing if you're doing the right thing and that that kind of runs through it as well but it's it's you know when i describe these things they sound like they're heavy-handed or clunky but they're told through these these perfect and subtle details that really convey all of these themes in a very uh Alice Monroe kind of way yeah i think it's i think it's her conversational style mm mhm you know i mean i this isn't in the story, but there, there's a story I love called um, Nettles. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, there's a section break, and it begins like this. It, it, a section begins like this. Johnston had warned us before we left that there was a prediction of rain. Mike had said we'd take our chances. I liked his saying we, and I liked riding beside him in the wife's seat. I felt the pleasure <laughs> 
<laughs> and the idea of us as a couple, a pleasure that I knew was lightheaded as an adolescent girl's, the notion of being a wife beguiled me just as if I had never been one. This had never, this had never happened with the man who was now my actual lover. Could I have really settled in with a true love and somehow just got rid of the parts of me that did not fit and have been happy? Mm. It's like, boy, I mean, that's just, yeah, it's so, you know, casual and informal, yep. but then it's like the way she jumps. Yeah. The tone yeah. of it and just the vocabulary and everything, it could be like a good storyteller at a Thanksgiving meal. Yeah. You know, there's right. nothing there. You know, you wouldn't say that about uh, James Joyce and Ulysses. You know, you, you, you wouldn't say, oh, I could imagine, you know, kicking back and listening to him tell a story in that, uh, you know, diction and, and with the, that sentence structure and everything. But with Alice Monroe, you could. But then, yeah, it goes deep. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, so that I, you know, I also love how many characters she covers in that paragraph. And you know, one of the things about the bear come came over the mountain is you get Grant and Fiona. They're aging, and they're such great characters. And then they they almost get eclipsed yeah. by Aubrey and uh, Marion. Yep. Okay, so let's give our final spoiler warning uh, at this point. This really is the point of no return now. If you don't want the story spoiled, you should pause it here and then come back to it. So let's talk about what happens when she gets there. So basically, she uh, when she's there, Fiona's there, and, and Grant is struggling to leave her in the care of the nurses and to see what things are like for her there and, and making sure that she's okay and making sure that... You know, sort of wrestling with the idea that he is no longer the day-to-day point of contact for her, that he's becoming kind of a visitor for her. And Mm -hmm. then he finds out that she has developed this friendship uh, with a man named Aubrey. And, um, you know, before we get to that, I mean, there was a point where after he dropped her off, and this is probably about... I guess eight eight pages in or something, and you'd think mm-hmm. this could be a little short story by itself. And other people, other writers may have stopped the story there, and you could have had an epiphany where Grant realizes that nothing's going to be the same, but things are going to be okay, or or that he's mm-hmm. going to return home and he's going to be struggling to live in this new, you know, he's going to have this new kind of home life before and a new understanding of his own life or his own world and instead Monroe is really just getting started she brings Aubrey onto the stage and he's what is he I guess he's a it's kind of like your story of someone that she has known in her past she knew him as a young person yeah and they had he had kind of a crush on her it sounds like is that it I don't remember that really wow yeah, he says something like, she used to come and visit me at my grandmother's house. Oh, and, right. You're right. Then, oh, my God. I never made the connection between yeah. that and Jerry. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And then Grant says, it's sort of this devastating detail where Grant says, I, I'm using the de- the word devastating a lot. I'm sure I'll use it about 10 more times. But uh, Grant has this... Uh, this comment where he says, yes, Fiona, I, I, she says, you know where my grandmother used to live, 
and she kind of describes the house and uh-huh. and Grant says, "Yes, I know. That's the house we live in, you know, or we lived in." You know, like oh, it's, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, this kind of reminded me the whole situation of Grant going to visit Fiona and her the way that Aubrey is becoming more and more important to her and the nurses will view them as kind of these, you know, this this friendship and Fiona's moods will be dependent on the time she gets to spend with Aubrey, for example, and it's kind of working in both ways. And it kind of reminded me of when I used to go visit my grandmother when she was staying in this uh, facility and she, you know, we would fly across the country to spend time with her and Mm -hmm. we would have stayed all night. You know, we, we would get there at, at noon or something and we would have stayed until midnight Mm -hmm. and at, you know, 4.30, she would start to get kind of anxious. And my parents, who knew her routines a lot better, would say, well, I think it's time for us to get going. And I'd be thinking, oh, you know, that was only five hours. Like, we have so much more we could talk about. And my parents would kind of usher us out of there. And then my grandmother would just take off. Like she was shot out of a cannon and she would hustle down to the cafeteria. And it was because there was some deal where if she didn't get there early, then she would have to sit at this table and then she would be joined by this other guy who got there kind of late and, and she didn't like talking to him and she preferred to be sitting at this table with her friends. And you just realize that even though, you know, she loved and and loved seeing us and we had this great time you you have to accept that you are no longer the only you know you're not the only thing in her world and she has this other world that's very important and she has daily routines and she has things that will be on her mind that don't have anything to do with you and it's it's um that's just part of uh, the experience and um, it was a hard thing to accept, but it, it would be a very selfish thing not to accept. Yeah, I mean, how quickly Grant is cut off from Fiona's world always yeah. just you know amazes me and the story. And yeah, and for uh, me, you know, I was just a a grandson, and I could accept that she you know wanted to sit with her friends and that it was going to be. Uh, her dinner experience was going to be affected by whether or not I overstayed my welcome. But for Grant, who is her spouse and her lifelong partner and who has, you know, how important that she was to him, for him to accept that she is now would uh, have this special relationship with Mm -hmm. Aubrey, it's just difficult to see Grant go through that. But you understand it's not anybody's fault. Nobody is trying to hurt him, and he understands that too. But it's a hard thing for him to accept. It's you know, Aubrey doesn't seem like such a great catch, but he is male and alive. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that you know flippantly because you know my my uh, my wife was telling me that um, her her grandfather um, lived well into his 70s and when he was in a retirement home he was one of two guys over the age of 70 mm. and the women were all on them all over <laughs> them 
<laughs> so right, right. So maybe there age. was something. Maybe there was something for Fiona where it was just the the pleasure of a man's company. Maybe she was recalling Grant in a way, you know, that yeah. um, that that was the person she spent the most time with, and maybe Aubrey was, um, you know, had shades of that but she also remembered him from when they were younger and and there's kind of this feeling at least from grant's perspective that that she's choosing aubrey over grant right yeah i mean it's great contrast too because before we get to the home we get that dream that grant has and then when he wakes up he sort of we get this backstory of his um, philandering. Yeah, that that's another twist or a complication is that he was yeah. not the perfect husband. Yeah, And so we get this. It's not as if he really has a right to feel betrayed necessarily because he himself was not always faithful. And this isn't going to be the story of this saint of a husband who has to learn to accept that his his wife is flawed or anything like that, or morally morally in the wrong or anything like that. He himself is kind of compromised in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that backstory because you, you can imagine the kind of regret you may have when your, your, your partner is going into a home and, you know, the, the way you've behaved. Right. It's just, it just coming back in fresh light. Yeah. Yeah, so, and so he can't, and then he can't expect her to, to be a nun or anything, you know, while she's there. He doesn't really have the moral position for that. But also, and let's not jump ahead too far, but this is kind of foreshadowing something, too, I think. The fact that yeah. he, you know, had was was a bit of a uh, an experienced uh, flirt and affair partner. So uh, there's another thing I wanted to point out. This is right around the same time in the story where... There's details with the nurse. Uh, oh, yeah. Christy. And, you know, that is another thing that Alice Monroe captures so well in this story is the way that the nurses become uh, the people you can kind of count on to tell you what's actually happening. And you can talk to them in a way that maybe you can't with the patient who's suffering from this uh, memory loss and everything. But the nurses are so pragmatic and practical and they're yeah. in their own way kind of saintly, but they're they're no nonsense too. And there's a, a part where the nurse says, um, and they make these comments that are meant to just kind of fill you in, but they're so enigmatic about everything that you've missed. And there's a point where Nurse Christie says to Grant, uh, oh, she's coming out of her shell. Uh-huh. The next line is, what shell was that? Grant wanted to ask. But, but checked himself to remain in Christie's good graces. <laughs> and it's just like, you could just feel it. How for Grant, like uh, a shell, like why would she be in a shell? She's Fiona. She's full of life. She's full of vim and vigor. And then to think that he put her in this home or, or you know, it was seems like it was kind of a mutual decision, but to know that he's wrestling with whether this was the right thing to do and then to hear that she was in a shell is just you wonder well is she afraid is she is she just being shy like what what is going on and you don't know because you're only there as a visitor you're not there at night you're not there you know during long stretches and and for days at a time and it's it's uh that was a really um 
a small detail, but a really powerful one. Yeah, I mean, it's if Grant's thoughts, I, I felt such sympathy for him the first time he sees her uh, sitting next to Aubrey while the, Aubrey's playing cards. He, you know, he says, like, Fiona's not even playing, but she, she, he's, like, trying to talk to her, and she she says stuff very, very uh, obliquely and almost like he's a stranger, like, oh, mm. you knew you knew her too? And then Fiona turns to him and says, can I get you something, a cup of tea? Yeah. And Grant goes, and the, the Monroe goes, Grant never drank tea. He could not throw his arms around her. That's mm. just the saddest moment. Because mm. he hasn't seen her for a month. You're, it's a mandatory you have to stay away for a month to help them accl- acclimate. And then right. he brings her flowers. He goes to see her, and she she's sitting next to some guy playing cards. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, oh, uh, I know. And there's this part where uh, the nurses say to him at one point, aren't you glad to see her participating in everything? And he says, <laughs> does she even know who I am? And it's like he can't even bring himself to comment um, yeah. Oh yeah, it's nice to participate. You know, I'm glad she's participating. Like that's just so beside the point. You know, what he's dealing with is it. It is almost like should he grieve? You know, should yeah. he? Um, should he help? Should he stay away? Should he? What should he do? It's a tension that just keeps building and building. Yeah. As the story goes on, Ugh. we're getting. We're getting a little bit closer to the ending, and I, I have to tell you, the ending just blew me away, and so I can't wait to get there. But uh, it's good that we're taking our time also because there's so much to this story. It's so... Uh, yeah. Here's another detail that I noted. The part where they cut her hair, <laughs> and right. he sees her, and he's like, what did they do to her hair? And it's And then she kind of reaches up to her head, and she like didn't even notice. Yeah. She hadn't really noticed, and it's just so um, it's so hard to watch Grant because he's feeling like he's the caretaker, like he he's the one who should know her better than anyone else, and yet she has to be in the care of these other people, and that it's maybe working out for the best even without him. But it's also changing something about her that if it was the old Fiona, would have been unimaginable to change. So. Now we're coming to the next twist, which is Aubrey's wife comes and she takes Aubrey home. And she's a great character. She is a great character. So what do you like about her? I just like how she's, she's so open about the way she feels. And Mm -hmm. she's another person who kind of runs forward and embraces life. And yeah, it's, she's almost, theatrical but then she reminds me of people i've met who i've you know wanted to avoid Mm. and (laughs) but (laughs) have had conversations with and i i think there's something that she the way she behaves or people like that behave in a way that i'm i think i'm too cowardly Mm. behave in that way because they'll say what's on their mind yeah, just like you know, I, I, who who can put up with him all these? Yeah, all, all these months. I need a little. Like everyone needs a little time, and it's yeah. like who everyone thinks that, but you know, do you say it to a stranger? Right. Yeah. 
right? And so she oh. takes Aubrey home, and Fiona becomes grieving. She gr- is grieving the loss. She's sad. She remembers Aubrey, and she misses Aubrey, and it's not Grant that she misses. And the nurses suggest that Grant might be able to help her if he goes to get Aubrey, maybe bring her back so she can see him for a little bit. Yeah, so, and then and then when he, he goes to see her, the house is garish, and yeah. she's done up. Yep. And, and he's <laughs> sitting in the other room, like, watching television, and he it's just a great scene with Grant and Aubrey's wife. Yeah. Um, it's just Marion, I guess her name is. It's it's so suspenseful about whether she's going to give in on this. And then this is the part I was kind of alluding to it earlier where she is giving really good reasons for why it's a bad idea for Grant to take Aubrey back to the home. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you, you think of it in terms of like, well, if she's... If she has any heart at all, she will let Grant do this. You know, here's Grant. He's really sacrificing. He's willing to do it. He's doing everything for Fiona. And it would probably cheer up Aubrey as well. So who is she to get in the, to interfere with that, to be the obstacle? But instead, it's not like that because the reasons she gives are so practical. She says, well, you know, he'd, he'd probably be better off if you took him to the mall and he could walk around there. You know, and she says, well, you you couldn't handle him getting in and out of the car, and he wouldn't want you to. You know, he's not going to be comfortable with you driving him somewhere. He doesn't know who you are. And all of those reasons, you, you think, oh, yeah, she's probably right. You know, like, Aubrey's not just some, it's not like yeah. picking up a, you know, a, a favorite toy or a puppy dog or something like this. He's probably going to object to, well, why are you taking me from my home to go somewhere I don't exactly remember and, and in a strange car with a stranger, you know? And then Marion doesn't want to do it because what's in it for her? Why should she? Um, and then she says, you know, he'll be, he'll, it's not good for him to go there and leave and come back and leave and come back. And, and then you think, well, that's right too. You know, all those things are really good reasons, but yet, you just think, oh, but this would, you know, Fiona is sort of slipping away. She's becoming depressed. She's, she's quiet. Like it's, it's essential Mm -hmm. that Aubrey comes back to her. It's the one thing that we know would really cheer her up and kind of bring her back to being like the Fiona that Grant wants to see. And this is the point where you just admire, like, how has Alice Monroe gotten us to this point? I mean, like the, <laughs> this dynamic between these characters and these relationships is it's kind of it's overwhelming in how real everything feels and how much we know these people. But it's also if you think about it, it's quite a uh, it's quite a maneuvering to have this many pieces in motion and this many different kind of um you know pulling on our on our heartstrings from different directions yeah i mean that she after marion uh and he i think she says no and then he he heads home and there's this beautiful passage he he says he had failed with Aubrey's wife, Marion. He had foreseen that he might fail, but he had not in the least foreseen why. 
He had not had any idea of the way she might be looking at things, and yet in some depressing way the conversation had not been unfamiliar to him. That was because it reminded him of conversations he's had with people in his own family. His uncles, his relatives, probably even his mother had thought the way Marianne thought. They had believed that when other people did not think that way, it was because they were kidding themselves. They had gotten too airy-fairy. They had lost touch with reality. Educated literary people, some rich people like Grant's socialist in-laws, had lost touch with reality. Yeah. It's like... Yeah. And yet, and yet he also feels like he maybe has some um, power over her because yeah. he's a professor. He's um, a little more distinguished. He's a little higher class. It, she doesn't make too much of this. The story doesn't make too much of this, but it's there. And it turns out that he's kind of right. And then there's this other beautiful passage that's so well done where she calls him. <laughs> yeah, she leaves. Uh, she leaves a message. Case, yeah, in case people don't know about answering machines, she leaves two <laughs> answering machine machine messages back to back. Which I mean, people can relate to this. It's with it's a little bit like email. If you send an email to someone you don't know very well, the last thing you you should do is send a second email. You're supposed right. to wait yeah. for a response, and that was pretty much the etiquette with answering machine messages. You yep. leave one, and then you wait for the callback. Yep. And this, this you know, could. Leaving two or three was a sign of a little bit of desperation. A little desperation. And this could be a. Um, this part could feel a little contrived. You know, and I remember Philip Roth, you know, when people would talk about how there's always sort of this Philip Roth stand in character and women all over the place are just throwing themselves at him out of the blue, you know, and, and kind of the objections that people would have to like you know this old man probably isn't going to walk into a bar and have a have two lesbians come up and suggest a threesome you know (laughs) (laughs) but this is so well done and first we kind of hear that he's thinking a little bit about her we kind of get this it's it's a little preview of what might occur here where he's talking about her and the fussy way she had of shifting her buttocks on the kitchen chair, her pursed mouth. And he's he's kind of, you see that he's been noticing her physically. And then you also know that he's got to figure out some way to get her to do what he wants, which is to take her husband to see his wife. And... And then, yeah, I'm going to read these answering machine messages because they're so good. So this is coming from Marion, who is a little bit lower class than Grant, who's a professor. And he, she has turned him down for his proposal to bring Aubrey to, to see Fiona. Mm-hmm. And um, he says, in the kitchen, the first thing he saw was the light blinking on his answering machine. He thought the same thing he always thought now. Fiona. He pressed the button before he got his coat off. Hello, Grant. I hope I got the right person. I just thought of something. There is a dance here in town at the Legion, supposed to be for singles on Saturday night, and I am on the supper committee, which means I can bring a free guest. So I wondered whether you would happen to be interested in that. Call me back when you get a chance. (laughs) And then it says, um, a woman's voice gave a local number. Then there was a beep. 
and the same voice started talking again. I just realized I'd forgot to say who it was. Well, you probably <laughs> recognized the voice. It's Marion. I'm still not so used to these machines. And I wanted to say I realize you're not a single, and I don't mean it that way. I'm not either, but it doesn't hurt to get out once in a while. Anyway, now I've said all this, I really hope it's you I'm talking to. It did sound like your voice. If you are interested, you can call me, and if you are not, you don't need to bother. I just <laughs> thought you might like the chance to get out. It's Marion speaking. I guess I already said that. Okay, then. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> and he says, you know, her voice on the machine was different from the voice he'd heard a short time ago in her house, just a little different in the first message, more so in the second. A tremor right. of nerves there, an affected nonchalance, nonchalance, a hurry to get through, and a reluctance to let go. And you just think, Alice Monroe has not said, oh, it looks like she's flirting back it looks like she's interested in him for a little more it looks like there's op an opening here that he may be able to use and but you get all of that just through that you know those answering machine messages and his description yeah. of her voice and you realize he maybe has a little leverage here but you don't know how far does he need to go what's What's the exchange going to be here? You see that he's got something he can act upon uh, in order to get what he wants, which is to take Aubrey, to, to have her relent, that he can take Aubrey to see Fiona. But, you know, and, and now it's this really fascinating moral dilemma, if it's a moral dilemma, but it feels like, is Grant going to sleep with this woman as a way of allowing getting her to allow him to take her husband to see his <laughs> wife. like, <laughs> And yet it doesn't feel like that exactly. You know, it feels just kind of like these are two lonely people. They're, they're, they're losing their spouses. And of course, why wouldn't you reach out and connect with one another? Because who else really knows what you're going through? And, you know, who else are you going to be able to go out and meet at this point? But if you're lonely and it's a very lonely situation, then why not go to a dance together? If if people like this, love this story like like I do, that I urge people to see this Danish film Open Hearts about mm -hmm. the about what happens to people who are lonely and somehow connected um together and how they reach for each other. Mm. So okay. I don't want to give it away, but it's a it's it's a it's a devastating film. Okay, so we, uh, uh, this, I mean, we've set up the dilemma, right? Or not the dilemma, but we've set up what's going to happen in the final pages here. Um, and then we know that, uh, Grant calls her and he's, you know, thinking about her body and it's kind of, he's kind of excited a little, I guess, but also there's a sense of duty, you know, he's kind of dutiful as he's doing it. And so you think, um, is he looking forward to this? Is he going to let himself enjoy it? Is this purely a mercenary act that he's going to do in order to help Fiona? Like it's, it's really kind of, uh, uncertain at that point. Then we jump to the ending and here's where I find there to be some real ambiguity. And I don't know if we should start with my ambiguity or if, uh, if you want to tell me the meaning and then I'll tell you what I, where I struggled. What do you think? 
Um, I maybe the way to do it is because you've read it multiple times, right? Yeah. Is to talk about your different take. Okay. You know, maybe initially because I have I have a different uh, take on it now. I think this is like the fourth time I've read it. Mm. Like the first time I read it. Okay. So she finally uh, she finally looks at this book of Iceland. Fiona finally has looked at this book of Iceland that Grant has With, given her. Yeah. And he sees her. So let me uh, let me read it, and I'll kind of talk through it as I'm reading they, it. Okay. They 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 have some Icelandic uh, heritage. I think the mother was from Iceland. Oh so. yeah. Okay, yeah, and it's always been he had brought her the book and then Oh, she had always wanted to visit. Right? Yeah. And there were times where he would bring it and she didn't seem to have noticed it. Right. Um okay. So here's the ending of the we're on the second to last page now. And mm-hmm. we I'm gonna do the jump. Here's where he's thinking about Marion. Okay, so he says the walnut stained tan, he believed now that it was a tan of her face and neck would most likely continue into her cleavage, which would be deep, crepey skinned, odorous, and hot. He had that to think of as he dialed the number that he had already written down. That (laughs) and the practical sensuality of her cat's tongue, her gemstone eyes. (laughs) And then where you think you're going to see, you know, his encounter with her and his asking you know, okay, now that we've done this or now that we're, you know, a couple or now that I've gone to the dance or now that we've slept together, whatever he's going to do with her, you think we're going to see that and then we're going to see how he's able to leverage that into or try to leverage that into bringing Aubrey to see Fiona. Instead, we jump to this. Fiona was in her room but not in bed. She was sitting by the open window wearing a seasonable but oddly short and bright dress. Through the window came a heady, warm blast of lilacs in bloom, and the spring manure spread over the fields. She had a book open in her lap. She said, Look at this beautiful book I found. It's about Iceland. You wouldn't (laughs) think they'd leave valuable books lying around in the rooms. The people staying here are not necessarily honest, and I think they've got the clothes mixed up. I never wear yellow. Fiona, he said. And so that's that's Grant now, right? Mm-hmm. And it says, then the response is, you've been gone a long time. Are we all checked out now? Next line. Fiona, I've brought a surprise for you. Do you remember Aubrey? Okay, so Aubrey is there, right? Now, we yeah. know that Grant has succeeded with Marion, and he's been able to bring Aubrey to see Fiona, which is this very uh-huh. generous and sort of self-effacing thing for Grant to do. So right. then, the next paragraph, she stared at him for a moment, as if waves of wind had come beating into her face, into her face, into her head, pulling everything to rags. Now, who is the him? All right, so here's my <laughs> the first time I read it, I was sure that it was Aubrey. Okay, so she's so in that interpretation, 
She but, stared at him for a moment. She'd be staring at Aubrey. Okay. Because yeah. he says, like, I, I brought someone to see yeah, you. Right. But then I think the subsequent times I've read it, I've always felt that, I, I started to feel that there's no way Aubrey could have appeared suddenly. Yeah. That Aubrey is not in the room. Yeah. Right. That she's looking at him, but there's a little bit of doubt whether she thinks he's Aubrey. Yes. But then she realizes it's Grant. Right. Cause, okay. Because so, I think Monroe is not one for ambiguity. Exactly. And she's too careful. She wouldn't just yeah. leave it. Um, she wouldn't trip over herself in the last on the last page of her of her masterpiece. So yeah. she stared at him for a moment, and then um, so the him there is probably not Aubrey. Yeah. Right. Because then she, the next here's how. Maybe I'll just read the rest. So after it's she stared at him for a moment. Names elude me, she said harshly. No, that's great. And at that point, if that is Aubrey, then you realize she she doesn't want to remember Aubrey now, or she doesn't remember Aubrey now, or she's being polite, um, or she's she's not being polite, she's being direct. But maybe mm-hmm. she's being kind to Grant in a way, to basically now she's suddenly saying, I want to reject Aubrey. So anyway, yeah. um, then the look passed away as she retrieved with an effort some bantering grace. She set the book down carefully and stood up and lifted her arms to put them around him. <laughs> now him, right? So in the in the first read, if you're reading this as, do you, I mean, we're, we're set up for this to be Aubrey, right? Do you remember Aubrey? She stared at him for a moment. Names elude me, she said. Then the look passed away and she lifted her arms to put them around him. The way the the grammar is set up here, the reference would be to Aubrey. So you would think that she's now put her arms around Aubrey, right? But then the next sentence is, her skin or her breath gave off a faint new smell, a smell that seemed to him like that of the stems of cut flowers left too long in their water. Yeah. So at that point, we've never been in Aubrey's head. We can only be in Grant's head. So right. the smell that seemed to him has got to be the smell of Fiona to Grant. But the the problem there is if we're reading this sort of the the most obvious way or the the clearest way you would you're picturing her hugging Aubrey but then Grant is the one who's getting the smell. Right. Okay. And so suddenly something's a little jarring there. That that would be a weird thing. And so it's kinda like, oh wait, are we hearing what what Aubrey is smelling or is Grant just really close and he's sensing that that there's a smell? But then uh I'm happy to see you, she said, and pulled his earlobes. And again, that could be Aubrey at this point. And it says, you could have just driven away, she said, just driven away without a care in the world and forsook me, forsooken me, forsaken. He kept his face against her white hair, her pink scalp, her sweetly shaped skull. He said, not a chance. (laughs) And then at that point, 
we know that's not Aubrey, right? Yeah. It just can't be. There's just no way that he kept his face. Like, Grant's not watching Aubrey do this, right? right? So it can't be Aubrey, but in her mind, it could be Aubrey or, you know, some some combination of the two. Yeah, I think that's it. I think, I think because it's it all this that's happening would be very weird if it was Aubrey, yeah. right? Um, but it's also we have we're we, the reason why we're thinking that it is Aubrey is because of this. You know, Grant walks in and says, "Fiona, I've brought a surprise for you. Do you remember Aubrey?" So why would he say that if Aubrey's not there? Right, he's sort of conflating the two, himself and Aubrey, to her. Hmm. I never thought of that way. I, I just think of Aubrey outside the room. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Aubrey's waiting in the hall. Yeah, but but Grant is feeling that you know here is this moment that you know it's finally the moment that he's been waiting for to be close to her again. So he's he's making Aubrey wait. Yeah. But then, but then, I mean, I always think that what we don't see, and so many of her stories, we don't see what happens, is Grant recedes. Aubrey comes in, and Aubrey has this really nice moment with her. Yeah. But we never we never see that. But that that could be what happens. Yeah. Right. Because if you look at it again, Fiona, I brought a surprise for you. Do you remember Aubrey? It's possible that she says names elude me harshly. And then she does remember Aubrey. She sets the book down carefully, lifted her arms to put them around him. That could be Aubrey. And then the part about her skin or her breath gave off a faint new smell. This could just be the sort of omniscient narrator who's telling us this. And a smell uh-huh. that seemed to him like that of the stems of cut flowers left too long in their water. There's no reason why that couldn't be Aubrey's. We couldn't just dip into Aubrey's head there. Um, no, I, I, I don't think it's Aubrey. I, I meant that after the book story ends. Yeah. Then Aubrey comes in. <laughs> because here's the reason why. Not a chance. That's not Aubrey's. That's not Aubrey's personality. Well, just think, though. Just think if... (laughs) Because that's the thing. That's a devastating reading. Because if Grant is there and he's brought Aubrey in and she and Aubrey have this moment together as if Grant's Mm -hmm. not even in the room and she remembers Aubrey and then she says, I'm happy to see you. You could have left me. And he Mm -hmm. says, not a chance. And we know there was every chance. It's only because of grant's extreme self-sacrifice that that aubrey is even there and so for aubrey to sort of steal that moment away from grant and Mm -hmm. take credit for like not a chance of course i wasn't going to leave you you know um and sort of take on this this relationship as as if he's the true love who you know couldn't be separated from her while Grant is there watching it, I mean, that that would just be the most heartbreaking ending imaginable, right? But the, I, uh, I guess... I guess I don't like Aubrey. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I don't like the idea of him hugging 
Fiona at the end. Yeah, no. <laughs> like but I don't want to. I don't want to see the scene where he has an intimate moment with Fiona. That's why the story has to end. No, we yeah, we want to see it end where Fiona and Grant are back, just like on page one, and yeah. that you know where they were always and only going to be together, where that's restored. But on the other hand, part of giving that up is what Grant has been doing this whole story. This would be like the culmination of his journey is to bring Aubrey in and to have Aubrey officially replace him, not just as a companion, but as a sort of soulmate that she's come around to remember and and is basically, you know, saying, oh, you could have left me. Thank you so much for coming back. And he says, of course, I'm here for you. That's got a kind of beauty to it as well, that this that they found this love even in the middle of their uh, affliction. But only if you like Aubrey. <laughs> it's not about who you like, Mike. It's about who Fiona likes. <laughs> you don't get to can't. pick. I just you're you not know, the one hugging these guys. When I rank the people, you know, <laughs> it's like I get I He's number Fiona. Four, or, yeah, yeah, I have Fiona well, number five, one. Number five, Nurse Christie is going to be. No, I put him in front of Nurse Christie, <laughs> but. I, yeah. I put Marion in front of him and yeah, so <laughs> yeah, uh. but, but it's uh, I mean, to people who manage to keep listening, even though they haven't read it, I, I I think it's one of these stories that once you read it, take a few months and then read it again. Yeah, because you you'll notice stuff like I noticed stuff that I hadn't noticed the first time when he meets Marion, for instance. He says to her, um, God, it's a, the dialogue is so, her dialogue is really underrated, I think. Mm, mm-hmm. He says to her, um, I, I used to see your husband at Meadow Lake. I'm a regular visitor them, there myself. And then uh, Marion goes, yes, said Aubrey's wife with an aggressive movement of her chin. And then he, he goes, Grant goes, how is your wife, how is your husband do, doing? Then he remarks, the doing was added on at the last moment. Normally, he would have said, how is your husband? Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, that was so good. Yeah, there's, there, there's so many moments in her, in her writing where you, I think you would miss it the first time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah or there's not time to revel in them or enjoy them the first time. Yeah, you know, you you miss it, but I I mean, I didn't I didn't think I missed it as much as I just knew that I still had forty nine pages to go, you know, and so I couldn't kind of, you know, what you really would like to do after a line like that is just sort of close the book and and spend a right. few minutes just contemplating how good it is or thinking, you know, just what a wonderful. Uh, depiction that is and how she managed to capture this perfect moment but you know the next sentence is going to have one of those too and the you know you you'll get 10 of those a page (laughs) now it's interesting because when you told me that you knew how this ended i thought i probably had missed something but now i don't think i did i think you just i think (laughs) monroe has offered up a couple of ways to interpret this on purpose and you have recognize that but chosen the one that you would prefer yeah i i 
I would like to see Grant and Fiona die at the same moment. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I didn't do much research on this, or I didn't try to see if uh, she's ever commented on it. I I hope that she hasn't. I, I kind of feel as if it seems to me very deliberately done to open mm-hmm. things up for both possible endings. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I, I, I think it would be a shame if she said, Oh damn, I, I know people keep thinking that it's Aubrey who's there, but it's really Grant. You know, I I don't think, I don't think that's what she meant at all. I think she was wanted to leave both of these and, and to kind of turn the story, which is very grounded in her prose as as her stories usually are they're, they're it's really it's all realistic fiction and then to turn it into something that's a little more open and airy and um almost spiritual at the end yeah no it's a, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful ending and kind of a perfect ending with what had happened with him and Marion, because when you first read that and the answering machine message, mm. you think, you know, this story could go on for 30 pages more. And it could get kind of sorted. Yeah, it could, it yeah. could get, uh, you know, we could, we could be seeing not just the sex, but we could be seeing some guilt and some, um, yeah. you know, some real repercussions here of, Grant attempting to have this affair in order to, to even though it's for the best intentions, we could see it all go wrong. We could see it being kind of a leaving a bad taste in his mouth, and but uh, instead it just jumps to this part with Fiona and kind of returns to the 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 opening page of the book or of the story where we're just seeing the two of them and their relationship. Mm. It's really good. Go out and read it. Ah, everyone should go and read it. So any uh, any final thoughts? I know we, we went kind of long here. You'd think when we just zero in on one story, we would have been very short, but um, I guess that's the nature of Alice Monroe. They, as you said, they're, they're novels. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, you know, there's so much of her to read. Um, mm-hmm. So I think maybe we should do an episode, maybe ranking our favorite 10. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. or favorite moments, or yeah, there's there's uh, definitely Alice Monroe deserves more than one episode. Yeah. Okay, well, let's leave things there. Mike, thanks again for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome, as always, for joining us. And to Alice Monroe for breathing such life and humanity and surprising spirituality into such an all-too-human scenario. We'll be back next week with our Halloween episode. That's a fun one, always. So subscribe now if you haven't already. You won't want to miss it. We'll also have another episode soon on our sister podcast, The Smart Awesome Show. We're talking to a scientist at Columbia University who's hard at work trying to understand the brains of children as they form. It's fascinating. That's the Smart People Doing Awesome Things show at Smart Awesome. No, SmartAwesomeShow.com. Is that right? www.SmartAwesomeShow.com. 
I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.